Good morning. If you want to turn to Mark this morning, Leighton's going to continue in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, the villages, the cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained for me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. This is the word of the Lord. May God grant us understanding. Well, God is good to provide everything we need. Uh, and Elijah preached this sermon already. In, in a commentary on Mark uh, by Daniel Aiken, he starts uh, his chapter on this with this. I'd like to introduce you to a prospective church member. He will attend every service, including special events. He will go on mission trips with a passion to convert the heathen. He will tithe, sing in the choir, read his Bible daily, and memorize scripture. He will be happy to pray in corporate worship, he is thoroughly orthodox in his theology. He is an inerrantist and believes in heaven and hell. He never gets drunk, is not predicted to porn, never uses profanity, is a family man, loves his country fervently, weeps on 4th of July, and votes the right way. You can tell where this guy comes from. His reputation in the community is stellar. If any man ever earned the right to go to heaven, it's this man. His religion is certainly something to be admired. Sadly, this man is headed for hell. I have just introduced you to a 21st century Pharisee. 
a Pharisee in the first century was not scorned as a legalist. No, he was looked up to as a model citizen and a person of piety and religion. Unfortunately, Pharisees had, as Paul says, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge from Romans 10. Amazingly, we can have a passion for God and yet not know God. We can be deceived, captured, and enslaved to the deadly lure of legalism. And tragically, those who have been raised in the church are the most susceptible to this deception. When Jesus talks about this in parable, he says in Matthew 13 that there was once a good farmer who planted good seed, but as his crop began to grow, his helpers came to him and said that an enemy has sown seed in your field. And they asked, should we go and remove them before they take hold and grow? And the good farmer, knowing the damage of removing little weeds from amongst little wheats, said, no, we will wait for the harvest in the fall, and we will separate them then. In this parable, Jesus is not talking about the world. He's talking about the church. In every church in the world, there are both believers and Pharisees populating the pews together. And at first glance, you cannot tell who is who. In fact, you and I might never be able to tell who is who. So we certainly can't start yanking out the maybe weeds. And unless there is blatant heresy or unrepentant sin, a church ought not going around removing people. As Christians, therefore, we are just to love one another, serve one another, tend to nourish all within our fellowship. And just as it's difficult, if not impossible, to tell who is a weed, it's difficult to tell who is genuinely righteous. And that's why our church, which right now is in desperate need of trained, equipped, and qualified elders, will still take years to disciple and to observe the character of the men that we will call as our next shepherds. So Josh is teaching through Romans. And like many New Testament books, it's written to the fledgling church, the newborn, born-again baby church, a church with both Jews and Gentiles gathering together in obedience to Christ. So how does a devout Jew, raised and nourished in the law, share life with a Gentile someone who may have absolutely no understanding of any moral law or any standard of behavior and absolutely no clue of what it means when God says, be holy as I am holy. And the point of the last few chapters that we've heard in Romans is that those with the law and those without the law are both in the exact same state without the saving work of Christ. So Paul writes, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is because those who only have the law cannot fully follow it. 
So they are just as lost without Jesus as those who never knew the law in the first place. In the end, neither man can please God. Both equal in sin. Both equal in need. Both equal when rescued. That's why the New Testament spends so much time talking about our equality in Christ. 1 Corinthians 10 16 and 17 says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in one bread. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6 says, there is one body and one spirit, And just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. So how does this all tie together? Well, after calming storms and feeding thousands, healing and teaching with the very authority of God, the Pharisees the ones who everyone thought were the righteous heads, accused Jesus' disciples, and thus Jesus, of being unclean. And we picked up in chapter 6 to establish location. When they had crossed over, and he had just walked on water, and the disciples had crossed the Sea of Galilee by boat, they came to the land of Gennaraset and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever he, they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. And this is a remarkable part of Christ's ministry. Wherever he came, villages, cities, countryside, or marketplaces, as many as touched the fringe of his garment were healed. But corporate heard about it. The heads back in Jerusalem. And so they sent their religious managers and CEOs to a second time to confront Jesus. Mark 7 Verse 1, now when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem with some of the scribes, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now here's how this story plays out. Act 1, the religious leaders see a little infraction to a little tradition, and they call out Jesus and his disciples. They say, you're defiled. Act 2, Jesus calls the religious leaders unclean and condemns their entire complex system of public righteousness. But not just that. He furthermore throws out their understanding of what it means to be a Jew. Everything that made them them, as they understood it, was shown to be nothing. Their whole underpinnings for separation from the world was shown to be incorrect. And Act 3, which, Lord willing, will be our text next week, 
Jesus teaches what actually makes a person unclean and defiled versus what the Jewish leaders taught. Uh, Mark 7, 3 and 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews had not, would, <laughs> do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. Now, I'm not calling my wife a Pharisee, but if hand-washing were the test, she would have a black belt. Oh, man. Our family, we hold hand-washing next to godliness. I have a sore throat. Did you wash your hands? My tummy hurts. Did you wash your hands? My pants are too tight. Did you wash your hands and then eat too much? But it's all for cleanliness' sake in our home. But here, in our passage, this is ceremonial. There's no soap, there's no scrubbing, there's no getting under the nails. It's just ritual hand-washing that the Jews are practicing. In the Greek, it actually says, they do not eat unless they rinse their hands with a fist, which kind of defies explanation. But in a place where water is scarce and precious, one could dip a loosely closed fist into a small amount of water and then still have their hands fully made wet. Here's the rub, no pun intended. There is no universal hand-washing law in the Old Testament. It's just not in the Bible. There's only a highly specific one for the Levites, the on-duty priests in the temple. Exodus 30, 17 says, The Lord said to Moses, You shall make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. That's maybe a little inconvenient because the Jews uh, don't practice that one. Then when they go in the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so they may not die. And it shall be a statute for them, <laughs> forever to them, even to him and his offspring throughout their generations. So this is a matter of what's good for the gander is good for the geese. If ceremonial washing ensures a priest's holiness, then it ought to be good for the whole populace. And it caught on, and the people ran with it, to the point where Mark here says it's practiced by the Pharisees and all the Jews. Now, it makes good sense. Washing your hands, very logical. But Jesus condemns it because it had taken over. He condemns this display for two reasons, and we'll come back to them throughout this message. Hypocrisy and heresy. One, this ceremony washing is outward only, which is hypocrisy. Jesus says they are dirty inside. And two, it's outside of Scripture, which is heresy. And as we'll see, the result is that man-made traditions never add to the law. 
They never add to the gospel. They eventually step in. They take over, and they replace true religion. I'm going to say it again because Josh is agreeing with me. Man-made traditions never add to the gospel. What they do is eventually step in, take over, and replace true religion. But the Jews, the Jewish people don't listen to Jesus on this point. They don't hear his discipline, his correction. And we know this because by the third century AD, when the oral laws and the traditions were written down on this topic, they state, whoever eats bread without previously washing their hands is as though he had intercourse with a harlot. That's the Babylonian Talmud. Now, why? This is because they read Proverbs 6.26, which says the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. And whoever makes light of washing the hands before and after a meal will be uprooted from the world. That's from the Siddhar Nashim. And whoever eats bread without first wiping his hands is as though he eats unclean food. And that's the Tractate Sota. In Matthew 6... Jesus condemns the Pharisees for acting religiously in public. It's the Sermon of the Mount. He says, they give so all can see. They pray on the street corners, and they fast publicly so as to be recognized. Now, all this is done to be seen by men. The modern phrase for this is virtue signaling. But this is what defined the Pharisee. Look, everyone, look. I'm doing that thing that sets me apart. Look, everyone, look. I'm doing that thing that shows you I'm righteous. And Jesus is scathing in his assessment of them. Matthew 23, it's the woe to you scribes and Pharisees passage. In verse 5, he says, they do all their deeds to be seen by men. In verse 25, they clean the outside of the cup and plate, but the inside, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27 and 28, they're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So why is this so bad? Verse 13 and 14 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, which is like you are not a child of God, nor do you allow those who would enter to go in. You lead others away from God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice the child of hell as yourselves. Back to Mark, verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commands of men. 
And Jesus recites Isaiah 29, 13 here. And he brings together both of the Pharisees' trespasses, hypocrisy and false teaching, and he outright says, your hearts are far away from me. And what you call the traditions of the elders, Scripture calls the commands of men. You leave the commandment of God, this is verse 8, and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And then he gives a very strong example, verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer pit him permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, and thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. This was only one example. At the center of the big Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, every time this verse comes up, I am bound <laughs> to say, this is not a command to children, as in children obey your parents, for this is right. Sometimes we get them mixed together. That's Ephesians 6, 2. But this command from the Old Testament is for all ages, because a 100-year-old can bring honor to his father's name, or he can bring dishonor. Your actions speak to who are your people, and your deeds reflect upon your kindred. If you are a child of someone, and I assume we all are, you represent them. So you see the obvious parallel then, that is if you call yourself God's children, you represent him to the world. In John 8, 44, Jesus had to tell the Pharisees, you may call yourself God's children, but your actions betray you. You really are of your father, the devil. And Jesus dismantles their system. Corbin was a pledge, an offering, as in Leviticus 2, 1 or 4 or 12 or 14, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering unto God, it's an offering. And Numbers 31 and 2, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, this is what the Lord commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And so it became an accepted practice to pledge an asset to God that could have been used to care for one's parents. And then in the process, leaving one's parents without any support or means. But because it was made as a vow to God, this was considered a holy act. And this twist of God's word was called righteous. And this is the way of things, isn't it? No doubt it started off as a worthy action, promising something unto God's service. But the man-made never stays just alongside of the God made. 
It always usurps, always crowds out, always replaces the godly. So here's the pattern from our passage. Verse 7, they teach the commands of men. Verse 8, they leave out the commands of God. Verse 9, they reject the commands of God. And verse 13, they make void the word of God. Now, church history is replete with examples of the laws of men superseding the laws of God. And it happens in what to wear, in where to meet, in how to worship, in who can join, and all the other evils perpetuated in the name of the Lord. Consider recent church traditions and culture. In the past few decades, drums in the church were said to have brought in the devil's beat. And this with great lament, because at the same time, church choirs and the majestic pipe organ lost favor. But in the 1500s, as the reformers began to break from all things Catholic, the pipe organ was characterized as the Pope's bagpipe, the devil's trumpet, and a seducer to the worship of the Roman Antichrist. Pipe organs were evil. And throughout Europe, the magnificent pipe organ began to be destroyed. And it was reported in various cantons of Switzerland that the pipes were melted and recast. In Schofhausen, pipes were made into wine cans, which some of you might find ironic and funny. In Winterthur, a new roof was made for the prison tower. And in Geneva, dinnerware for the city hospital out of the pipes. And man-made traditions sway our religious culture. I have a friend named Dennis. He grew up in the deep south of the United States. And he once told me that as all the farm income for the past two to three hundred years, that's hundreds of years, was made growing tobacco and cotton all the respectable churchgoers would smoke, but they would never let a drop of alcohol crest their lips. But traveling a little further north in the States, to those that primarily grew barley and hops, the church folk would righteously bring alcohol to potlucks and corn roasts, and yet they would never suffer a smoker in their midst. Upon hearing this, I was naive to the world as ever a young man could be because growing up even further north in Canada, I said a Baptist would have no association with either such vice. Relatedly, at my friend Troy's wedding, his mom goes up to the mic and she raises her goblet for a toast and says when he was but five years old, she offered him a sip of her dinner wine to which he responded, mother, and drink damnation upon my soul, I would never. He was five. And the young guy picked it up somewhere. You and I both know that people have been run out of church for much, much less. Now, I want to make my point using alcohol. And I'm sorry if it's a touchy subject. I really, I mean no hurt. 
I think we can agree that it's hypocrisy to condemn drinking in others, but then secretly drink when alone. But here's the danger of hypocrisy. Whole generations have taken a good verse, like Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery. And they've committed their lives to living free of alcohol, which is a good thing. But then, demanded that all alcohol is evil, and that no one should partake in it as a rule of God. But that's extra-biblical. It's condemning more than the Bible condemns. And that's proved to be a slippery path toward judgment and condemnation and even more sin. Because straight out of Romans, really straight out of Genesis, when something is made taboo, it becomes for us that much more tempting. The word catechism means to instruct. And we follow a catechism here at our church. It's the New City Catechism. It's a series of questions and answers designed to teach young and old the basics of Orthodox Christian doctrine. And this fall, one of our Sunday school offerings will be to go through the New City Catechism, one a week. And it is fantastic. But that word has a lot of baggage. Because in past, some catechisms have wildly strayed from true biblical doctrine, but also because some catechisms have led generations of people to believe that once they have memorized the right words, that's all that they have to do for salvation. And they've gone on to lead terribly ungodly lives, believing that heaven is theirs and their sins will magically be forgiven. Here again, the teachings of men came in and replaced the truths of God. We tend to see hypocrisy in others, but are often blind to it in ourselves. Similarly, we see hypocrisy, false teaching in others, but because we swim in it, we live in it, we actually need others to see it in us and to point it out. I've said this before, but it has a place here again. The Pharisees were not the sneering old wizards rubbing their hands together and plotting evil, planning deception like we picture them nowadays. Okay, some of them were evil and murderous hypocrites, but to the masses, the Pharisees, the sect or the denomination really of the Pharisees were the ones trying to revive a faltering Jewish faith that was watered down by the influences of Greece and Rome. They they were the ones dedicated to holiness, purity, and righteous living. They were the ones calling their nation to live better than they were. Like the man described at the beginning of this message, they were the good-looking, get-her-done heroes who you wanted your sons to grow up to be like. So we might ask what went wrong. In pursuit of purity, separation, and holiness, Judaism left true religion, and endless rules replaced true righteousness. It's sometimes called building fences, and it goes like this. 
To protect a law from being broken, another law was made in front of the first. And a series of protective rules were erected in front of the biblical law. Don't want to accidentally use the Lord's name in vain? Well, then remove it from Scripture and replace it with an abbreviation. It actually makes a lot of sense, logically. It just doesn't help anybody spiritually. This explains why the national and religious leadership was made up of lawyers and scribes, doesn't it? Parsing and interpretation becomes critical to godliness in that kind of system. The fourth commandment says, do no work on the Sabbath. So someone better define what work is, right? And we should get somebody else to, deci- to define what constitutes a Sabbath. And that's why the Jewish Melachot outlines 39 Sabbath restrictions, including planting and reaping, sowing and tearing, writing and erasing, igniting a fire and extinguishing a fire, building and destroying, and so on. In Mark 2, Jesus corrects this kind of effort and says that he is actually the Lord of the Sabbath which means he both fulfills and becomes our Sabbath. And he teaches that the Sabbath was made for the benefit of man and not as a burden of untenable boundaries or fences. In Israel, hotel breakfasts are huge. They have huge assortments of cheeses and milk and bread and fruits and hummus because hummus goes on everything. But after breakfast, all the foods, all the cutlery, all the plates and cookware would be cleaned up and put away until the next breakfast. And completely different foods and cutlery plates and cookware would come out so that there would never be any mixing of breakfast foods with lunch and supper foods. This is because in three places in the Old Testament, the law forbids boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. Don't want to accidentally eat milk and baby goat together? Then make a system where that could never, ever happen. Did anyone have a Mick Cafe today or this week? In Israel, Mick Cafe is not just a coffee or style of drink, but it's a separate restaurant standing right beside all traditional McDonald's because McCafe serves milk for your coffee and tea, as well as desserts and items with cheese. It's an entirely different entity from McDonald's, which serves burgers and meat and entrees like that, with no milk products in sight, ever, anywhere. In building fences around the laws and in teaching them as if they were God's law, Judaism has become a new religion. It's divorced from that of the Old Testament of Abraham and Moses. Unquestionably, what is practiced now as Judaism has no relation to that of the Old Testament law and prophets. And this is why the New Testament spends so much time establishing what is the good news, and fighting the human tendency to add to God's Word. 
fighting the lie that you need the gospel plus something, fighting the human tendency to say yes to grace alone, but then live like if grace alone is good, then grace plus something must be better. Paul to the Galatians says in Galatians 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Verse 3 then, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being perfected in the flesh? And this becomes such a serious matter that Paul says in Galatians 5.12, regarding the necessity of circumcision, I wish they would go all the way and fully castrate themselves. It's in the Bible. Last week, Josh spoke on Paul to the Romans saying, adding to the law, adding law to the gospel will not gain you anything. In fact, it destroys everything. And Jesus to the Pharisees says, you focus on tithing mint and cumin, but ignore the weightier issues of truth, justice, and mercy. So what are you and I supposed to do with all this? The quick answer is to walk closely enough with one another that we can fight heresy and hypocrisy in ourselves. So obviously a heightened awareness of our own hypocrisy is critical. You might consider that children are very good at pointing out hypocrisies in dad. I joke, but again, we need to trust godly people around us to help with this kind of character growth. It's one very important function of a healthy church. We also need a renewed commitment to reading and studying Scripture to avoid heresy and to gain a stronger and clearer understanding of true biblical doctrine. In joining the membership of this church, you are submitting to the authority of the elders, and one of their main jobs is protecting the church against false teaching. But, and this is what I want to leave you with today, we are all Pharisees the moment we speak, act, or think that we need to add something to God's grace. The moment we try earning heaven, the moment we put on anything other than transparency, the moment we work for God, trying to help Him out, the moment we look down upon sinners, instead of seeing this as a reminder of sin in ourselves, the moment we add to the gospel, the moment we take something from the gospel, the moment that we live like Jesus' blood isn't the only thing necessary to save. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that it is by grace alone that we are saved, and thank you that you keep correcting us as we walk this road. It is our human tendency to want to do more, to want to earn or help you out. 
instead of relying completely and solely on the blood of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be in each other's lives so deeply that we would be able to talk about this to one another, call this out in one another. Because the tendency is real, it is so close to us to act the Pharisee and not know it. Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ is saving us from ourselves, from our sin. Amen. is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name. in pride or shame but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross I rejoice in my Redeemer greatest treasure wellspring of my soul I will trust in summer flowers we fade and die fame youth and beauty hurry by but life eternal calls to us at the cross I will not boast in wealth or mind for human wisdom's might, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul.
my body, fix my right. 